If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 514. Being an artist means not having to advert one's eyes. Akira Kurosawa. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Vidafair. In a world where filmmakers are trying to find new ways to generate revenue with their films, Vidafair lets filmmakers set their own price for a 24-hour rental of their work, which includes features, docs, and perfect for short films. This is truly a revolutionary way for filmmakers to generate revenue with their content. For more information, head over to vidafair.com. Well, guys, today on the show, we have television director Dan Arias. Now, Dan is not just a television director. He is a legendary television director. He has worked on pretty much Every one of my favorite shows in the last two to three decades. I, I mean, he even he even got to uh, be a DGA uh, second assistant director on ET Airplane. Worked with Francis Ford Coppola, George Miller when he was just coming up, 
And the shows that he's worked on is basically a top 50 list of the greatest shows ever made. And I'm just going to list off a handful of them right now. Miami Vice, Northern Exposure, Party of Five, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Sopranos, CSI Miami, Alias, Six Feet Under, Deadwood, Entourage, Friday Night Lights, The Wire, Heroes, Big Love, House, MD, Hung, The Walking Dead, True Blood, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Billions, Bloodline, True Detective, Ray Donovan. I, I, I just can't anymore. So many amazing shows that uh, Dan has worked on. And he decided to put all of his wealth of knowledge in his new book, Directing Great Television Inside TV's New Golden Age. And if you want to get into not only how to direct television, but how to tell great stories, how to work with actors, how to run a set, how to prep, how to have a mindset to walk onto set, how to overcome those days that are going to be insane on set, and so, so much more. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dan Adias. I'd like to welcome the show, Dan Adias. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing great. Nice to be here, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I, I truly appreciate it. Uh, you have a new book out, which is about directing great television. And my friend, after doing research, you've shot a, a couple of a couple of TV shows. Yeah, just a few. Just a, a few. few. I mean, the list, and, and I'll put this in the show notes for everybody to go to, to your IMDb page. I just kept going. I went all the way to the bottom. So I see where you start as far as television is concerned. And then I just started going up. I'm like, Jesus, Jesus, gee, you worked on that? You did 10 episodes of this? You did four? What, what? And it just kept going and going. So it was pretty remarkable. I mean, as a television director, I don't often see you working on, you know, the same guy who worked on Buffy generally doesn't work on The Wire and The Sopranos <laughs> and House and all these other, it's just like, it's, it was, it was pretty remarkable. Uh, it's still a pretty remarkable um, resume you have. So if there's anyone to write a book about this, uh, you're not a bad candidate. <laughs> well, thank you. I, 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 I hope I learned a few things along the way and uh, was excited to share them with people. So how did you get started in the business? Let's see. Uh, well, when I got out of college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I had been an English major. I got accepted to law school. My heart wasn't in that, so I didn't start. And uh, I gravitated towards acting just as a kind of way to kind of get better acquainted with myself, play a little bit more with, you know, letting go of, of, uh, of personality and kind of putting myself into other imaginary circumstances. And I really became enamored of that in about three years. I studied to be an actor. I got into some stage plays. Uh, but I found that my real strength uh, was not so much in acting because I found I got in my own way. I understood scenes well. I understood what scenes were about. But I found it challenging to kind of uh, reconfigure my internal life to be able fully to embody what the character might uh, require. And I'd understood what was necessary, but I had trouble getting there when I was the one who was going to have to be seen and judged and evaluated. When I, ha I happened to uh, wind up in film school, uh, 
as a way to to continue to study acting. But in the in the film school program as I was in, I had to make a film because the idea was well you're gonna if you're gonna write about film or it, it's a good thing to know just what's involved. And I made a short film, and uh, it was an epiphany. It was uh, uh, I, I learned that when I was behind the camera, when I could. Uh, ask actors to kind of uh, uh, inform a character. I found myself very articulate, very empathetic. Uh, I, I was a better actor directing an actor how to get there. I loved giving them the, the ideas how to, how to get to a performance. And uh, the real epiphany came when I started assembling it. And I saw that by putting two pieces of film together, an emotion, a reaction was uh, sparked in the viewer, in me, when I would watch it. <laughs> And I found that if I could monitor how uh, an image affected me and then an edited image with another one together, how it affected me, I could pretty much reliably count on the fact that someone else would have that same internal experience. And so it became very exciting to me to realize I could communicate my own deepest subjective experience by the way I put together the film. And that was just electrifying. It was a way I could, I realized I could communicate, I could express, I could uh, share my internal experience with others in a way I never before had been able to. So that was when my, my you know, career got defined for me, what I wanted to do. And uh, how I actually got work was a little longer of a journey. I, I, was in a, I wound up getting into a master's uh, MFA program in film school and didn't have a film I wanted to make to get for my thesis. And I didn't want to be a career film student. I'd seen a lot of the big fish in the small ponds. And I decided, well, until I have a film I want to make, maybe I could apprentice myself to good directors by becoming an assistant director. And I didn't really understand the job <laughs> director. I thought maybe you really do assist the director in directing. Which yes, is you, you sto yeah, isn't, the, isn't it the assistant director who storyboards and sets up shots for them? Doesn't, and, no, 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 I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> I'm absolutely joking. Thank you, Alex. I can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, there is some creativity in it. You get to sure. stage, stage the background. I wound right. up being a second assistant director on E.T. and I got to stage the background, for example, when E.T. went out trick-or-treating and all the kids are there. And, you know, that was uh, some of my handiwork. But I wound up uh, getting accepted into uh, the Directors Guild Assistant Directors Training Program. I went through that. I was a training assistant director on Airplane, the movie. Then I became a second assistant director, and as I mentioned, was fortunate to work with Spielberg on, on E.T. I got to work with Francis Coppola as a second assistant director on One from the Heart. I worked with George Miller on the episode he directed of The Twilight Zone. I worked with we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal 
hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. And now, back to the show. Vim Vendors on a movie called Hammett, which uh, Coppola produced. So I had a great experience, got to work with many, many brilliant filmmakers, and uh, after a short time, I went back to film school, made a short, which uh, fortunately won some film festivals and got me an agent. And from there, I uh, got my first job, which happened to be a feature film. It was Dino De Laurentiis's, uh, uh, he produced it. It was Stephen King's Silver Bullet was my mm-hmm. first job, 1985. And, uh, you know, my television career, which I appreciate you kind of enumerating some of my credits, I didn't really start out thinking that would be where I'd land. I wanted to, you know, continue my work as a feature director, but I didn't want to do another horror film. Those were the things that were offered to me after Silver Bullet. And I became very particular and thought I would develop my own material, which uh, I I didn't connect to material uh, that I got impassioned about. And so kind of as a placeholder, the TV work came available to me and I thought it would be, well, something to do until the next feature came along. But the surprise for me has been that it's been in directing series television that I really came of age, I think, as a director. It, 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 it uh, is, was fascinating and continues to be fascinating uh, to me to, to get to confront so many different dramatic, uh, comedic situations, so many different stories and sensibilities to sensibilities to inhabit, stories to tell. And uh, I've grown to just so love uh, immersing myself in so many different worlds that it's become a a passion. Well, let's go back for a second, because I have to ask, I mean, what what was it like being on the set of Airplane? (laughs) with Jerry and, and yeah. that, and that insane crew. And <laughs> well, airplane, airplane was, was insane and a great deal of fun. It, it remains to this day. I'd say between that and, uh, I was a producer director, uh, in the early seasons of, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I'd mm-hmm. say those two experiences, uh, stand out to me as kind of the most fun I've ever had on a set. Uh, and on airplane, you know, you have, you mentioned Jerry and, and the Zuckers and Jim Abrams, you know, there are three directors and none of them had directed before. They came out of something called the Kentucky Fried Theater, which they had yeah. developed in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, what was so incredible was the freshness of their humor, because now it's become, you know, it's become so much a part of the culture that we all, you know, laugh and you know, don't call me Shirley or those things. But those, <laughs> none of that, none of that had penetrated the culture and it was known to anyone. And so, you know, in those days at lunch, you would, they would screen dailies. Uh, everything was, of course, was shot on film. Right. We'd go to the lab and get developed and the editors would sync it up. And the next day at lunchtime, they would show them the director and others could maybe come and watch. Well, they opened it up to everybody, and it was the hottest ticket in town. We'd all be working all day, but we'd want to 
spend our lunch hour going to the screening room and just howling with laughter at this incredibly uh, original, uh, yes. fantastic humor. So it, it was it was a blast. I mean, have, have you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> have you ever spent time in a Turkish prison? You know, I mean, it's <laughs> funny too. It's like you know, nowadays I wonder if it could even get naked. No, no, no. I because, was thinking, you know, it, it touches on so many things that have become. Oh my. Happen. Oh, no, I mean, I mean, Blazing Saddles, uh, you know, Airplane, those kind of movies don't, I mean, how Borat even is, was allowed to be made in today's cultures is is remarkable. But no, I remember watching Airplane and I still, I still know that I remember seeing the story that it was one of the worst uh, reviewed, not reviewed, but uh, test screened films of all time for Paramount, because at the time, everyone who watched it loved it but no one admitted it they didn't want to admit that they actually were laughing at something so silly because it was kind of the first time i mean it was slapstick um and we hadn't seen slapstick in such a long time it was just fascinating but then of course it blew up and everyone lost their mind for it but it's just one of the funny and then uh, and then you mentioned a couple of people spielberg coppola what is the biggest lesson you learned from watching like spielberg work on set like that i mean in in his i mean he was spielberg already at E.T., but like E.T. just took him to a completely other level. Well, I think what I learned from uh, Spielberg and, and other great directors I've been fortunate to watch uh, is the importance of trusting your instincts, the importance of having a, a deep connection to the material, the importance of taking responsibility as the storyteller, the importance of honoring your own vision for it. These are all things which uh, will be interesting. I hope we can get into to discuss how it applies to serious television directing, because that's uh, an area people often don't ascribe those qualities to. They think of it as primarily the writer's medium, the showrunner's medium, and the director, the guest director coming in just for a quick hitter and, and probably not you know, having much even responsibility for the storytelling, when the truth is, in my view, uh, I approach every show I direct as, uh, as, as my show, even though I have to, um, let me qualify that, I have to serve the vision of the showrunner because a show really needs one, one vision. And it's my job to understand fully what, that, what those intentions are of the showrunners, what the vision is, what their ideas are for them story, but I cannot tell it well unless I make it mine. I cannot, uh, unless I connect to the material in a way I can personally care deeply about, I cannot make anybody else care about it. So I have to, when I'm in the director's chair, have to absorb all of those givens, and then I have to find my particular take on it that cannot be in contradiction to the vision of the showrunner, but it can further it, it can, I can give it my particular take, and I Hopefully, can add can add something to it that would, would that can only come through me, just as any director has only themselves to to offer. So, and that's it's so interesting because you know, as a film director, as a feature film director, you can create whatever style you want. You can use the camera however you want to tell the story. You can move things around. You can create a visual uh, language that is all on. It's all yours. I mean, you watch Goodfellas. And it's a Scorsese film because Marty gets to do whatever the heck Marty wants to do. And he moves that camera in a different way. But when you walk on the set of The Sopranos, it's David Chase's world. And this world has been set up already. And the visual language has kind of been set up already. 
and the themes and everything. So I think it's even harder for a television director to kind of stamp their their stank on it, if you will. How do you do yeah, that? I've given a lot of thought to this, and I, I hope it's, I make some of the points I, I'll try to make here in my book. Uh, uh, I, I kind One metaphor I have for it, 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 it's as if every show has its own language, and by that I'll include sensibility, tone, way of seeing things, way of camera works, all that. It has its own language, and my job is to learn that language so that I can speak it in my voice. It becomes not mimicry. It becomes, okay, these are some givens. These are some parameters. But now let me fully uh, explore myself within those things. How, If these are the rules, how can I make use of them to fully express what I have to offer here? So uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating uh, – you know, it's funny – I mentioned that I studied to be an actor for three years. It's an interesting parallel uh, in that, uh, you know, I have been fortunate to get to direct a wide variety, not just of shows, but of genres. I've directed uh, The Sopranos, The Wire, Six Feet Under, Deadwood. More recently, you know, The Americans, Homeland, all kind of very serious shows. I've also directed, as I mentioned, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Buffy, 10 episodes, as you mentioned, of Entourage. I do comedy and, I, and I, I'm attracted to a show if it's a new and fresh sensibility because I regard it as an invitation to uh, fully immerse myself in this new world, uh, benefit from the sensibility of maybe an interesting showrunner, uh, benefit from getting to work with new actors, new talent. Uh, so that I uh, can emerge with an inside-out understanding of that world, and I can become part of my own process. But in acting, what's interesting is that, like an actor gets offered various roles, that actor has to find themselves within it, has to kind of conform to the needs of the story. What is the story we're telling? What, what is my particular role? How do I see the world? What are my imaginary circumstances? But you still feel it's the same actor. I mean, when I, Meryl Streep can play a you know wide range of things. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. 
So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now back to the show. But you kind of know there's something essentially Meryl Streep that comes through in every role. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of similar. You know, it's kind of, or, or, you know, or your take, you know, let's say Hamlet. You know, it's, oh, my God, did you see Olivier's Hamlet or Ray Fine's Hamlet or whatever? But they're all, it's like no one's changing Shakespeare's world, words, no one's doing it. But there's something unique because the, the presence of that particular person is fully animating, is fully informing that, that character. Well, it's, it, there's some similarity when you approach a new project as a director. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're bringing yourself to it. So of the things you mentioned, yeah, every film has a visual language, say, for example, you know, and uh, some of your... Older listeners might remember NYPD Blue. That kind of yeah, yeah, very much. Of, uh, you know, uh, was groundbreaking, and it had this handheld camera that no one had seen, so everything was shaking. Well, you're not going to come into that show and said, "Okay, let's just fix the camera right here." <laughs> Wide shot, guys. Master, master shot yeah, theater, guys. Master shot theater. Can't theaters. do that, but <laughs> you can learn the language. You can. It's another interesting feature of is that uh, what I'm always asking myself as a director in every creative choice I face. Uh, is how does the question I ask myself is how does that make me feel? How do I feel? What's the emotional subjective state this particular choice evokes in me? Uh, it can go, for example, in rehearsals. I'll watch a scene and uh, unfold, and I'll have a I'll have an understanding of what I feel the scene is about, what what has to be communicated in terms of the story going forward, what we have to get out of this scene, what's happening between the characters, and. And as, as I'm watching the scene unfold, I try to stay open to what the actors are bringing to it before I make any suggestions. But, uh, but as I watch them, you know, I might find myself, oh, I'm, I'm interested at the beginning. Oh, I got bored for those, you know, three or four exchanges. And now my interest picked up again here. Well, I know that only by, you know, looking inward. It's like, I'm just not interested. Oh, now I'm interested. So where I'm not interested, I know, okay, that's where more digging is necessary. So what would make me interested in that? Or if this scene is being played in a way where the intentions are not interesting to me, I, I, I don't just say, well, it's a bad scene. I say to myself, what would make this interesting to me? Or if I'm breaking down a scene with actors and, you know, there are seem to be saying lines just because the script says it's their turn to speak. <laughs> I yeah. want to find a, a reason why their character thinks to say that particular response, that particular line in response to what the scene partner is saying, I said, well, let's dig in. Let's see. What could the scene be about subtextually? What could really be at issue that would make your response not just appropriate, but would further your character's intention? So these are all things that come only from, I believe, looking within and assessing how you feel about what's being presented to you. And then you measure that against everything ultimately always has to be measured, in my view, uh, uh, against what is the story we're telling. We have to define that. What is at issue? Because a story is so much more than what happens. A story is the meaning you ascribe to what happens, the emphasis you give, what you want to acquaint the audience with in terms of what is at stake here. And those are that's really the, what the director can bring. And, uh, you know, it's often been said that the, direct, the, the art of directing is kind of uh, invisible. Because if you've done your job really well, unless you're, you know, want to kind of make a splash and kind of show off with a 360-degree uh, camera move every other 
your shot, you know, <laughs> like that, which can be fine if, to my mind, if it's in service to the story, if it's in service to creating the subjective state in the viewer you want to put them in to fully experience the story. It's, but, you know, yeah. It, really. It's really interesting that you say that because so many times, you know, as look, when you're coming up as a film student and when you're a young filmmaker, we all see you know, Kurosawa and we all watch Scorsese and Spielberg and, and, and Coppola and you see these shots that they create, like specifically that, you know, that one long eight minute, uh, steady cam shot from Goodfellas. Goodfellas? Yeah. The Goodfellas shot. Can I interrupt so, you? Can I interrupt you to tell you one yeah. thing? I've just been directing billions. I did the season finale of season five. And shit. Yeah. And, uh, and now I, I just, and that, and the process just finishing up an episode for season six. One of our uh, camera operators is Laurie McConkie who did that shot. No. Or it's easy. Yeah. I was just, just in, I was just asking him all about it. And it was so fascinating. And I'll tell you something that's interesting. So Scorsese, of course, is a master and a genius. Sure. But Larry's story to me about how that shot came about is instructive. It's not just, oh, Scorsese's a genius. He did that shot. No, it doesn't no, work that way. He said, okay, this is what has to happen. And Larry described to me the process. Well, let's see, I'm following Ray in, but, you know, but, you know, I, but, the path was actually not the logical path because they go in and then they go around the kitchen and they come all the way out back to where they entered the kitchen and then go through a door. They could have bypassed the kitchen altogether, but it would have been a short shot. So how to make it look like uh, they're making a continuous walk and not just coming back. To, you know, so they devised all these things. And in the construction of the shot, you know, Larry was saying to, you know, Ray, it's like, hey, Ray, can you? Uh, I need a distraction here to happen so I can catch up with you when you're ahead of me. And then they say, okay, why don't we bring in this? And they started inventing all these things which are in the shot. Sure. But that came about through a collaboration. But that's through a need for the, you know, and that's so that's the beauty of filmmaking. And, mm -hmm. and it's the beauty of, of directing television or features when you're doing single camera directing. It, you know, it's, it's such a beautifully collaborative process. And uh, the one thing the director has to have, however, is the vision. And, the, and television, very, very much in a way that people may not really understand. You have to, you're the only one. Forget the fact that the, you know, it's the vision of the showrunner you serve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As in feature films, so in directing series television, you as the director are the only one who is assessing moment to moment in the making, the hands-on making of this show. How do I feel about it? What is the audience's experience? Has the story point been delivered? Is the performance there? Do I have the right shots to edit this the way it should be edited? The director is the only one who's, who says yay or nay to all of those things, who's saying, I don't think we have it, or I think we do have it. And, you know, shows will still get made and they will air and the story, a certain kind of story will get told. But how deeply the audience experiences it is can vary wildly between how different directors will, will handle it. And, and it was it was f funny because what I was trying to say, what the point I was trying to make with the Scorsese shot, which that's a fascinating story by the way, yeah. and that makes all the sense in the world because it's not just a lot of a lot of filmmakers think that like you know Marty wakes up in the morning and he has everything laid out and he just goes, you put this here, put this there, action, take one, done, let's move on. That doesn't. It's a collaborative art. Things happen on the day that you didn't right. know was going to happen, all that kind of stuff. Right. But what the point I was trying to make was as, as young filmmakers, you see that shot and then you try to shove that shot into your story because you want to be cool as opposed to the season director who puts that shot 
in the back in in the file cabinet. And when a story needs a shot like that, it is presented in service of the story as opposed to where I'm just going to show off. And you, you know, can tell I the have, difference. I have a, I have a chapter. One of the chapters in my book is called "The Language of Camera," mm-hmm. and uh, I describe early in my career. I was doing a show that involved, uh, I'm not going to say the particular show or the name of the cameraman because I don't want to disparage anyone, but mm-hmm. it, it was a show that involved uh, a young, uh, three young friends, two, two uh, young men and a young woman, and the two young men were best friends, and one of them had just broken up with the young woman, and the best friend was interested in kind of making a move on the woman, but he and he cleared it with us, is that okay? And then he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're over. And uh, they, they wind up at a bar, and it's a, a scene of stage around a pool table. And the uh, the new would-be suitor is kind of showing the girl, the young woman, how to hold the cue, and it's very seductive. Right. You know? yeah, of course, got, yeah. No, no, you just kind of, you know. Yeah. And the other that already said, it claimed no interest in the matter, is watching and getting more and more pissed off. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, so the scene was about, this growing jealousy in this guy. And uh, the cameraman, who was very accomplished and was far more, this is early in my career, and he was far more uh, a star on the show than I certainly was. And he and we had gotten along great and, and all that, but he came in and said, oh, this is great. You know what, let's, let's do kind of a swirling camera around. It'll be like color of money. Scorsese's color of money. Mm-hmm. The camera's just going around and around and around. It'll be awesome. And I'm thinking, well, that would be awesome. But I said, but you know, the problem is, the story I'm telling right now uh, requires a point of view. <laughs> it requires, you know, this, uh, the one who's, uh, who's broken up with the, with the girlfriend watching this. And the way I imagine it's going to be cut to tell that story is going to be intercutting, mm-hmm. you know, increasingly tighter shots on what's going on. So it's not serving the story to do that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now back to the show. And the cameraman walked off the set. He said, okay, fine. You can do it without me. 
and he went to the trucks and, uh, you know, because he, he had fallen in love with this idea. And it was a very awkward situation and it was very uncomfortable. But when I got to the editing room, you know, I was very happy that I had stuck to my guns. Whereas in other situations, I've done shows where I make use of that swirling camera because it serves the story. Because right. like in another instance I cite in the book, you know, there was a story where I wanted to create a kind of dizzying experience for this protagonist who was kind of losing control of the situation. So the camera creates a subjective state. And yes, it's an impressive shot. And that's marvelous. I'm the, I have nothing against impressive shots but only so long as the impressions are in service of the story. Yeah, and that's and that's uh, that's a great story by the way because if you start analyzing the swirling camera and color of money, I promise you that scene is not about jealousy. It's <laughs> it's about something else. It could be a, a, I, I remember color of money right. and it could be a montage or it could just be Vince's you know energy that day and he's just trying to show it, it's it's a show off piece right. and he's a show off character and that's a show off camera right. move. In that in that context. Now, now, I'll give you an example of uh, of a show of a scene that I think is one of the, is very cinema, uh, cinematic that I did that I am very proud of. I love the scene. It's very cinematic, but it's also what I love about it is it really advances the story. There is a season finale of a show called The Killing. Do you remember that show? Oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. wonderful show. And in the third season, the finale, uh, Marie Enos played this detective Skinner. And, and she's, you know, a depressed character, kind of on the lookout, trying to avenge some inner wound she's had. She's a defender of, of uh, adolescent kids, and there's, there's there's a murderer afoot. And and in this end of this this last season, she's she's having an affair with her lead detective, her her superior, who's her boss essentially. And uh, in the last episode, he's he she comes upon him when he's packing to leave his wife and and. As they're leaving together, the wife comes home unexpectedly, and it's just a just excruciatingly awkward situation where Murray is like, you know, mortified. She has to watch, and she sees her the the detective give a hug to his teenage daughter, and as he's she's watching him, he sees on the daughter the on her finger a ring, which is a very distinctive ring, and it's the missing piece of evidence which not been able to find, which only could be in the possession of the killer of these teenage girls, this serial mm -hmm. killer. So she sees, oh my God, he's the killer. <laughs> this man I'm having an affair with who has been supervising this investigation, who I've been sleeping with and I'm about to walk to uh, his car and get in his car with him, is the killer. He doesn't know that she's seen this. Mm -hmm. So it's a walk to the car and there's almost no dialogue. And I describe in the book, and I did go through everything, but, you know, we did this, you know, we ramped the camera to slow motion as Murray is walking down this walkway towards her car, the guys ahead of her, I had, I, I had her look directly into the lens, she's completely haunted, it put the audience in her own subjective state, uh, as she approaches him and she's seeing the back of his head bobbing up and down in slow motion, she's, she's, she's wants to leave this reality, it's so horrific. And what, what I used then was I had a, an ice cream chuck kind of cross and in slow motion as she's looking at the back of the killer's head, her, the camera, her point of view drifts off with this ice cream truck with this eerie kind of, it's in slow motion so we could distort the sound, this children's mm -hmm. melody, so distorting all of the reality and objectifying that she wants to leave this situation. She doesn't want to hold her attention on the horror right in front of her. And then a boy on a bicycle comes back and another symbol of innocence kind of, the camera pans back to the 
to the killer. He turns around, still not having any idea that she knows anything. He looks straight into the camera, breaking the fourth wall, putting the audience right in his crosshairs. Mm-hmm. So, like, and then the exchange, just in a look between them, he understands in a moment that she knows who he is. And without a word of dialogue, I, I really, you know, uh, hoped, and I believe they did, the audience really felt, you know, we've had a whole experience of a whole story point getting revealed and had shared the protagonist's inner experience of horror. And then we went back to live action and she did what police do and she arrested him. But that's a case of really being able to use the camera, you know, in a certain way, an impressive way, but only in service to deepening the story and the experience of the audience. Now, when you walk onto a set uh, on an established show, even if it's been a, a first season, but especially if it's been third, fourth, fifth, or sixth season or higher, um, these actors have been playing these roles um, for for years. As a general statement, you know, when a director works with an actor, they're developing the character together, in features at least, they're, directing, they're developing the character together, they're figuring things out, there's still a lot of questions. When you walk on the set of Entourage, those guys knew who those guys were, you know, or you walk on The Sopranos, you know, you're not, you're not telling Tony Soprano how to do the, she- the scene, <laughs> you know? So how do you direct actors who just know the character better yeah. than you? That's a great question. I would say in those two instances, you know, I directed uh, uh, the early episodes of both Entourage and The Sopranos. Actually, I was fortunate. David Chase had done the pilot, and uh, <laughs> we had known each other through Northern Exposure. Mm-hmm. And he invited me to do the, the next episode after the pilot. They were down for nine months before they went to series. So yeah, he told. Of, yeah, he said. So there was, uh, and in Entourage too, I did early episodes too. So. In those two instances, I was kind of on the ground floor a bit. But you're absolutely right. That is one of the fundamental challenges of series direct, two series directors. And uh, again, I have a chapter where I address this directly. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me. It's like, and I'll say as well that, you know, not just with actors, but the, the challenge is not just with actors. The challenge is establishing command and being the leader of a set where you're the temporary guy man or woman, right. you're, you're coming onto a situation that's ongoing, not just the actors know all of it, the crew. know them better than you, but everybody else has been involved with the show much more longer than you have, so you're coming in to run the ship, to be the captain of the ship for a week and a half on set, you know, for eight days of shooting generally, maybe it's ten, if you're lucky, and uh, so, so in addition to developing uh, the qualities of leadership you really need to have, and that's not to say, you know, being commanding, but having command, you know, having a connection to the story, having, taking responsibility. Everybody has to sense that you are taking responsibility. But when it comes to actors, there's, there's many more subtle issues. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's their skin in the game, right? It's their mug up on the screen. Mm-hmm. You know, a bad choice, a bad, you know, can really impair their whole future. You know, it's like if, if they come off silly. So... I'm aware of several, several, the most fundamental couple of things I'm aware of is I need to develop trust very quickly. And how do you do that? I need them to see that I'm somebody they can trust. And how I do that, one one of my approaches is uh, before I ever get there, I've immersed myself in the show fully. And I've watched as many episodes as I can, or I've read as many scripts as I can. I've fully absorbed uh, the script that I'm charged with directing. And uh, 
I try to try to subtly let the actors know that I'm very very aware of everything that's gone before. So, for example, when I start giving notes to actors, I'll, I, I'll, if I can, I'd like to frame it like, you know, this moment feels to me, you know how, how in the third season you had that episode where you right. were confronted with so-and-so and, and you did such a beautiful job of kind of, you know, uh, playing it close to the vest and manipulating the situation. So, so it, it feels to me this situation is somewhat like that. I think in, so that, you know, right away they, they, okay, okay, this person isn't just kind of coming in to kind of wave his, blood. wave his thing around. This person, <laughs> right? This person is interested in being a storyteller, which gets me to the other really significant thing is I, uh, I have to make everybody understand what is true for me, which is that my only interest is in telling the story and, and not just telling the story, defining what the story is in an interesting way. So every show, every episode is unique. You know, it's easy to fall into a trap. Oh, yeah, it's just another episode of so-and-so. Well, it's unique. This is, you know, this, these are unique circumstances to this story we're telling today. At least unique in the sense of this scene has never been enacted between these two characters before. <laughs> you know, this particular conflict has never been enacted. I mean, yeah, maybe in a broader sense, it's a repeat of certain things. But every situation is unique. And I approach it that way because I think, you know, being general is the enemy of being interesting. You know, it's like you have to make things specific. I learned that when I was an actor, and I know that as a director as well. And so I try to make it clear to whomever I'm speaking as an actor, I try to make it clear what I think is really going on below the surface. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. And now back to the show what the deeper intentions are, and what point in the story, what, what story point is being delivered here? What are we watching happen? What, what, is, what do we want to emerge from this scene with? How does it advance the story? And right away, I find actors are almost always engaged by that process. And they have to, you know, you have to have an interpretation that's interesting to them. It has mm -hmm. to be something. 
But if they know your serving story, then they know you're not serving yourself. Right. And, and, you know, and they want to serve the story too. And you have to, you have to be able to uh, embody for them the ways you've, you are fully immersed in it and you know the story. So I have to believe in, in the course of your career, there must have been a day or two on set where you dealt with a difficult actor and or difficult crew member. I think you mentioned earlier that one that kind of left. Specifically with actors, if there's a star of a show or someone who's been on the show forever and you're the, you're the, the first time on set, you really have – it's very difficult for you to have any um, – you have no leverage. So how do you handle an actor who doesn't want to do what you want to do or yeah. doesn't see – how do you deal with that? Another interesting challenge and, you know, as a part way of answering this, I want to add to the, the last mm -hmm. which is it's fundamentally important as well, not just to impress an actor that you know all about the story. I don't want to turn sure. off that. But you also need to show them that you respect them and their choices and that you you – are interested in their take on the material and that you see what they are doing. So for example, when I want to adjust an actor and this, this applies to difficult actors as well. If they do something I don't like, or I don't think serves the story, I don't, you know, there's an impulse we all might have. Like, oh God, it's not, it's not it shouldn't be that way. <laughs> you, know, you know, you're sitting back at the monitor saying, okay, how do I get that? But instead of just saying, no, no, not that, do this, you know, what I try to do when I give a note is I try to observe what I saw them do. They made a choice that I don't agree with, but I want them to know I saw the choice they made. So I'll come in and, for example, say, you know, I see that, you know, you decided to, you know, you played that moment by uh, trying to overpower them. You know, uh, I saw that. I, you know, I thought that, that you know, and, and I, think, I think you did that well. You, you, you know, you, I just think, however, I'd like to invite you to think about that moment a little differently. I don't think maybe that's, I'd like you to try a different intention rather than overpowering. Uh, maybe I'd like you to see, I'd like to see you try this, uh, trying to work your way around, around the character as opposed to overpowering through it. I mean, how, if you take, so I'll give this to, I'll give them the adjustment, but it will be hopefully after I've conveyed to them, I see you made a choice and I saw what you did. Because, you know, we all feel better when we feel seen. And once we feel seen, we're much more willing to, okay, I'll try something else. It's not, you know, if you just come mm -hmm. in and reject something, you know, it's like, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, difficult actors, you know, and I should say too, you know, there's so many cliches about actors. You're right. And I'm glad you couched it, you know, and of all the experiences you've had, there must have been some. Yes. Of course. There have been but far more there are. And it's oh, of like course. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I just want to just put in a plug for actors, having been trained as one myself. It's, it's in oh. so many ways, the most challenging job any of us have. We're asking actors to carry the emotions that we'd rather not have, but we'd like to see someone else go through them. You know, <laughs> we, like, what would it be like to imagine the worst horrific thing that could happen to you? What would that be like? Oh, I'm going to see this character. And action. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's not easy to act that authentically. You know, you can indicate it. You could say, oh, it would be terrible. But you, the great performances characters are really exploring those feelings from the inside. So we're asking actors to be so vulnerable. And uh, they're willing to do it for the most part. So there's something, you know, really admirable about that and challenging. So I'm very empathetic to actors. Um, so I try to, uh, and, and actors for the most part, 
you know, they're not just, uh, you know, people think of them as egotistical or self-centered or narcissistic or difficult. And some of them can be, as I say. Yeah, in the book. But so, like, so can some PAs. Just like directors can yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. Directors, so PAs, people, right. you know, grip people, everybody. So, yeah, yeah. All right. So that is a qualifier. Now, what, do you, what to do with someone? And it's not just an actor. It could be, as I told you, yeah. a cameraman who was an sure. egotistical guy and I couldn't get around him. You know, they're all, you'll, you're going to run up. That's the other amazing, wonderful challenge and it can be an infuriating challenge of being a director. You come in and you're kind of in command of, you know, 80 to 100 people and, and that you rely upon. And, you know, if someone is recalcitrant or difficult, or, you know, you're going to need their collaboration. So you, there's, you have to find a way through. I'm sure other departments could say, boy, I have difficulty dealing with certain directors because they don't, you know, see things talk, as I see it. Do, and they're yeah. But uh, but so with difficult actors, you know, everybody's unique. So I every relationship is is unique. You're having a so it's you have to tr do your best to connect to that person. Now, when they have walls, it's it can be very challenging. I find that generally, if I approach them with respect, that does that 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 goes a long way. That's a good thing. If I feel heard, that goes a long. I think most effective is when I appeal to them on the basis of story, not do this for me or do this because I think so. Or, you know, it's like, you know, when I say, you know, that's an interesting choice you've made, but I don't think it's the story we're telling at this moment. I think the moment here we're playing, this is a story. And I find a lot of difficult people are really just want it to be good and are kind of not trustful that they're going to be guided to uh, appropriately. But if they, if you can intrigue them, if you're as, again, it goes to if I'm interested enough in the story, can I get someone else interested in it? Uh, but then, you know, occasionally you run into the egotistical person who's not going to admit that you were right about something. No, that's a challenge. So there's just, you know, there's no how to book here. Uh, I'll share <laughs> one story I had. I had an actor once who was particularly uh, paranoid, really, about he, he, he was a good actor, uh, but he, he would always prepare, you know, how he was going to do something. And he would take almost any suggestion you could give him. It's like, nope, no, I'm not going to do that. It's just, nope, nope. It's like, you know, the actors are going to are screwing me up. Directors are screwing me up, but I'm not going to take the note. Uh, and this particular guy, uh, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, narcissism is kind of loosely thrown around, but he, he, he did tend to like to be the center of the scene. And, uh, and I had a scene with him where, uh, a beloved character was coming into a young woman was coming into this group and she announced that uh, she was dying of cancer and the group, you know, was hearing this and it was meant to be a huge revelation for the audience. She was a beloved character. And this particular actor went, he was very good at crime and he, he <laughs> went, you know, just a, a incredible <laughs> moment of, Look at me! Look at me! Center. Oh my God! Look this at is me! It's just yeah. Look at me! Look at me! And uh, you know how to give him a note? I say, Oh my God! He's making the scene about him, and uh, it's it was supposed to be Oh my God! You know this young woman is dying. So you have to be clever. So I came up to him and I said, You know, um, I think I think the audience is going to care more about you the more you can contain your grief and care about her. Oh, what a great note. Oh, we just heard that. He says, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. 
And it's like he just took it like it was his idea. I later, <laughs> of course. Heard him, I later heard him tell someone else on another, another episode. He says, no, people are going to, you know, it's like the more you, you know, care about something so it's like you know whatever works that know? was like some jedi that was some jedi mind trick stuff you know and dan we were talking about this earlier uh off air but you know after i i've known a lot of i've known a lot of television directors throughout my career and worked with with many and i've had a pleasure of working on some sets as a director uh doing some shows and you know seeing your filmography i get it and knowing speaking to you and knowing and you know and having conversations with you uh in the past i understand why you work constantly and you're working at such a high level with such high level shows is not only are you you know talented and i'm not trying i'm not going to embarrass you but not only are you talented but and it's something that is a point that i want to make is that you can, I can sit in a room with you and not want to kill you. And that is, that is one of the biggest things that filmmakers and directors and writers, especially writers in writers rooms, never underestimate the ability to be able to sit in a room with someone and not want to kill them. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the show. And that is, it is... In many ways, look, we all have to be talented and you have to know your craft, but that one little, that one little equation is the difference between you getting the job or not. Because if you're in the room, you're talented for the most part. And of course, there's different variations of that and you have more experience in that. But do you see what I'm saying? So because well, of your- I do. And, and I'll say, Alex, you know, uh, you know, I, I heard that about you and hearing you say this now, I'm glad I think the next time we talk, we don't have to put it on Zoom. I'll be in the same room with you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> if you're not going to kill me, I'll be glad. No, but it's but it's <laughs> but it's so important. And, and, and like I always like people always ask me, what's the best that's the best advice you give give me if I want to make it in the business? I'm like, don't be a dick. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a lot of truth to that. There's a yeah. lot of truth to that. Uh, yeah. You know, I'll say also there's something humbling about directing series television because, mm. you know, you, as a director, you know, you don't get the credit sometimes you feel and right. sometimes you actually do deserve. It often goes to, uh, you know, you might direct the pants out of a scene and the, and the actors get the credit for it, even though you know what it started with and you know where you got it. Or you might make a scene really come alive and and uh, finding depths of, in the, within the material that the writers didn't even suspect and never mentioned to you in the tone right. meeting, but then they'll get credit. Oh, what a great 
written. You know, and the Emmy goes too. Like that's what I mean. It's kind of the invisible art, and there's right. there's in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, but that's something I actually really like because we all have a tendency towards we all have within us the tendency towards grandiosity and everything else. And I mean, you know, look, look at the business we're in. The king of the hill. It's very easy for that to kind of emerge. <laughs> uh, so you know, there's a kind of built-in kind of tamping down of your ego that comes with doing this kind of job, which I actually appreciate. Um, but it's it's I and I'll, I'll, I know I'm going to look better if everybody else does their job well. And if everybody else does, if we make a great show, it's going to, it's going to, I'm going to get more credit. So it's like, it's, it's, it's so much better just from a purely selfish point of view. And I don't, that's not my approach. I like Mm -hmm. people having good experiences. I don't like being a dick. I'm fully capable of being a dick. (laughs) I have been been on occasion on sets because stress can be great Mm -hmm. and the frustrations can be great and all that things, and you know, it's inevitable that things are going to be times when you don't act, right. you know, according to your best self. Fortunately, I and I'm appreciative of you saying that, and I think for the most part, I do a pretty good job of being a, a reasonable human being. Um, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's something to strive for. It's something, and you're going to do better if people feel respected, people feel seen. They're going to give you a better effort. And so that's that's just from a purely selfish point of view. I want people to feel good about themselves. I want actors to be able to take credit for like here's another thing about, for example, directing actors. You know, an egotistical director sometimes will really glory in the fact that he or she is kind of, you know, define the scene here, do it this way. Isn't that better? Yes, you know, I know I gave that to you. And it's like, you know, that's that's just ego. it's so counterproductive. What I'll I will always, for example, when I approach a scene, have a staging in mind because I've thought about it in my prep. I'm trying to find, first of all, I have to find for myself, what is the conflict here? What are the intentions of these characters? What is some physical action which will convey to the audience, even without dialogue, what is going on? So that it may be one goal of staging for me is, for example, to realize if you turn down the sound and just watch the scene, would you know what it's about through the behavior? Of course. You You try to find things like that. Uh, so I always have a staging in mind, which is not to say I'm not open on the day if a rehear- in rehearsal if something better comes out from the actors. I love that. If, if anything that makes it better, I love. But when it doesn't, or when you're in a time crunch and everybody's asking, okay, how do you want to stage this? Because we got to, you know, light start lighting. Uh, you know, I'll have something to offer. Uh, but it's far preferable to me if the actors find that staging. Because if it's their own, if they feel they've connected to it, if it's coming through their bodies, through their consciousness, they're going to be they're going to be connected to impulses that are going to enrich the scene in, in many more ways. So it's just better throughout if people feel ownership, if people feel they're they're valued and they value their own creative resources. So again, just to repeat it, it's just it's 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 intelligent to be not to be a dick. <laughs> now, there are times, there are times you don't want to make a you don't want to make an absolute about oh I'm always going to be understanding and all that no, because no. there are times when as the director you have to drive the you have to drive the boat or the car or whatever you got got to get it made I, and you've got to kind of you know uh, if people aren't uh, you know are slacking off you've got to you've got to call them on that because you know no one else is likely to do it so yeah. it's a fine dance yeah it's like my grandpa used to always say sometimes you got to show a little teeth. Um, you know, every once in a while, you just got to let them yeah. know that the teeth are there. Like it's, 
it's kind of like when you watch uh, National Geographic, you see the lion, he's just hanging out, he's just hanging out, and then the kid just keeps pumping him and pumping him, and all of a sudden, little, 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 okay, okay, forgot you're the lion. Sorry. Right, right. You got to remind people that there, there would be a consequence if you really. Uh, if you if you keep pushing, the teeth will come out. Which brings me to a, another question. I think is really informative. Um, if again throughout your career we all have it as a if you're directing you go through this there's a day where the entire world is coming crashing down around you um you're at you're on the on the the deck of the titanic you feel like the whole thing's coming down what was that day for you and how did you overcome that day how did you get out of that hole that that yeah. for, uh, that you fell into by whatever happenstance well yeah, I can take that on two levels. I would say usually, almost always, uh, you can anticipate what days those are going to be because they're just like, for example, I just did, uh, this, as I mentioned, the season finale, season five of Billions, which just aired like two, three weeks ago. And it's, it's a good example because we had a day that was, uh, because of COVID, there uh, has not been a lot of tourism in New York or there wasn't, that's picking up, but I think we shot this around, I don't know, May. Mm-hmm. This, and there was a, a sequence where Damien Lewis's character is turning himself in to be arrested, and it was a helicopter flying in New York. And we, because of there's not that many tourist helicopters these days, we had access to this incredible landing pad right on the uh, East River. Just beautiful, seeing all of New York City and all that. And it was a hugely written sequence with like eight different cars with eight individuals showing up four more cars of police showing up, no, a helicopter landing, uh, <laughs> uh, Axe, the character Axe, Damien Lewis, expected to get out of the helicopter, not getting out of the helicopter because he had done an end around. Uh, all these characters reacting to the fact that he had, was not turning himself in, various flashback sequences to go in to explain everything that happened. You know, several pages of work on, a, on an active helipad in New York City Harbor. And with and one of the prescriptions on this show talking about visual language is they love coverage on this show and they love direct direct in the eyes coverage on everybody. So you know when when you have you know fifteen characters Ugh. confronting everybody, it's like you know the famous challenges of shooting a dinner table scene. You look to the person there and you look to the person there and then you know I'm sure your audiences most of them are sophisticated enough to know that screen direction, but for those who aren't, you know, it's generally the language is generally if one character looks left to right, the one uh-huh. you're talking to is looking right to left. And when they have movement around and when, and when the film language of this particular show is that everybody has to be straight on, it's, it's really challenging. And the producers thought, well, we probably need a day and a half, but that's <laughs> And I said, you know, what? I think, I think we only have a day. I think we can make it in a day but it's going to be challenging. So I knew going in, this was going to be hellacious and it was going to be a terrible cost if we didn't get it. It just takes tremendous preparation. Uh, You you have to also learn to anticipate where the, uh, this is where experience really helps because you can, you have to anticipate what, what, you know, how many shooting hours are going to have? How can we shoot efficiently? You know, in this case, and in many difficult days, the way you shoot efficiently is to, uh, is to the description is chase the backlight, meaning you, you block shoot everything. So you're looking into the sun and as the sun is going across the sky, mm-hmm. you know, that that's when you shoot the other direction because backlight is always much more attractive and much more appealing and, and, it, and it 
is faster to shoot because you don't have to create an artificial backlight because you have this you know beautiful sun. But it was just boom, 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 boom. So I had a rehearsal. We got all of these you know consummate actors there you know at five thirty before dawn, so we could get out there and I could explain what the day was going to be, how we were going to shoot directionally, which means we were going to be shooting out of sequence a lot of the time. That I was going to ask everybody's participation and cooperation and understanding. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That it wasn't going to be necessarily the best for their performances. They'd have to kind of be able to jump moments in various moments and, and be on call to jump and get something else. And it was a grind and we almost didn't get it, but we got it. Now, it comes about, and I can, I could detail, you know, a hundred kind of situations like that. Over mm-hmm. You know, in a book I write about, there's a chapter I write about the show Snowfall, the season opener on season three. We had a day like that. And I detail, I think your readers might, the audience might find it really an interesting experience. I found it fun to describe mm-hmm. about particular challenges of a hellacious stunt and, and all this kind of stuff that had to happen in one day. And, and the challenges and how we almost didn't get it, but we pulled it out by the skin of our teeth. There's a lot of agita. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of, <laughs> of, uh, a lot of uh, but the main thing there needs to be to do it well is planning, is everybody being on their game, is leadership, is kind of there being one in command. Not just the director in this in these cases, it's the assistant director is very key. Um, and then, so that's one kind of really challenging day. Then there's the kind of day where you have unexpected things happen that just, you know, there might be, uh, who knows, there might be an accident on set that, you know, is, everybody mm-hmm. has to attend to. And there might be uh, a weather, weather situation yeah. that can come up. It just requires, what's so exhilarating about it, as terrifying as it all can be, what's so exhilarating, exhilarating about it is you have to, live by your wits you have to kind of another chapter i write about is entitled interstates because i think it's often unacknowledged what a what a wild array of emotions you go through as a director of an episode of television or feature films as well and you have to develop an ability to uh deal not just with stress but deal with you know all, all manner of things the image I have sometimes is like diving below storm-driven seas, you know, and it's just chaotic on the surface. But when you get, you know, several feet below, it's just completely calm. And you can look up and you can see all the activity above you. You've got to somehow, you can't live there, but if you can just dive down there for a few moments, sometimes that's all you need to come up with a solution. How can we get through this? And you can find, and, and if you really stay... The other thing you really need to do is do your best not to panic. That can be disastrous. Oh, yeah. No way out. I can't. Because, because what happens then is you're not connected to the story. You're not, it's like that's what I'm always doing in times like that. I try to always do it, period, stay connected to the story. But when you're really challenged on a tough day, you really have to think what is essential to the story here. Do I really need – I don't have time for the six shots I designed. What <laughs> do I need? What's – What's the gist that I have to communicate? And often, often you, that kind of pressure produces a diamond. You know, it's like I've had that happen a lot when I've had to shoot something far more simply than I had intended. Mm-hmm. But it's so dense and rich and interesting that it's, I think, wow, why didn't I think of that before? That's better. 
you know, not always. Sometimes it's disaster, but and by disaster, I'm overstating it. And it can be. Unfortunately, I can't think of any instances. No, sometimes it's like instead of the six shots, uh, I got it all in one. Uh, as yeah. opposed, to, but in your mind, the six shots you absolutely yeah. you needed it yeah. to make yeah. this thing work. And sometimes, you know, you know, a lot of times show scenes will play a lot better in what we call a water. Um, mm -hmm. but you're, you're hesitant to try it because mm. you can't save it in the editing room. If there's right. a problem, that's oh. it. You're stuck with that. Yeah. So, but, that, but then, sometimes in, in those situations, that's what's required. I mean, and look, you might turn and there are shows, for example, that hate that. And they tell you, no, don't give us any wonders we want. We always like coverage and all that. But sometimes in those situations that gives you leverage to go to the producers or let them know, says, listen, we don't have time. I'm going to devise a shot that I think works well. And, uh, you know, so at a certain point, all bets are off. you got to just tell the story. Yeah, I was watching a show the other day. I forgot the name of the show I was watching. It's one of a Netflix show or something like that. And they did a oneer, And it, it, it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And, and my wife and I were watching it and I'm like, oh, they're not cutting. Oh, this is nice. And it's like, and it just, and it just kept going and kept going. It's like, and you know, shooting wonders, I've shot many wonders in my career and oh, they're wonderful when they work. Cause you're like, ah, oh, just knocked out seven minutes off that, off, off the, and I was able to do it as opposed to, uh, <laughs> having to cut a thousand things to edit seven minutes. That could what what I also love about wonders when they work, it's, it's deadly when they don't. Oh, it's, yeah, you, can't, you have just, no, you can't, you can't, yeah, I always, yeah. I, but I always give myself an escape valve. I always, well, I do too. I, yeah. Between you and me, Alex, I'm yeah. always looking for that too. Like, can I just grab off a pop of this person here in case I want to shorten the scene or whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. But the great thing about wonders, I think, and, and you'll notice, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting how many features play whole scenes in wonders. It's like, it's much more a characteristic of feature filmmaking than mm -hmm. it is television. But what I love about it is the experience it gives the audience, which is that they're not being spoon-fed everything. Like, God, look at this, look at this, look at this. There's more the experience, even though the, the, their attention is being manipulated by how you're moving the camera and how you compose, there's more the feeling that you're choosing what you're looking at. You're, I'm, I'm having the experience with you in this. You're not being force-fed something by cut to extreme close. Right, cut. right. And, and I think it makes a deeper experience often in the viewer they feel like they're participating in the process a little bit and and the show was goliath i just remembered oh it was yeah. the last season of goliath it was well one you of, know when you talk about shows that do that i i had a great deal of fun directing the marvelous mrs Maisel. i don't know oh yeah, yeah yeah i've never seen it but yeah yeah it's a fantastic show and it's visual style i love doing it because it's it's uh it really uh encourages you to to think in terms of wonders they do elaborate Wonders that feel like a magic carpet ride. It's like uh, the best. Know, <laughs> you can the, get it. Yeah, uh, Amy and Dan Palladino. It's just uh, <laughs> they created it and they direct a lot of them and they devise this style and and it's unbelievable. And when I came in, I was just took it as a real fascinating challenge to see things that way. That's an example. It's like okay, how how can I absorb this language and how can I see? And it became so much fun. I did a, a, a show the third season about a kind of beatnik invasion. Of his household and overrun by beatniks and everything and you have you know tony shalhoub going crazy and, <laughs> and it's like how to create a, the subjective experience of rachel brosnahan mrs Maisel, as she comes into this uh this house full of 
with invaders, like one welcome spores there. Mm -hmm. And it's just how you tell the story with what the camera sees before it pans off this and then 360 and then moving around. Oh, it's it, great. It's, it's so much fun to design it. Um, but again, Let's, that goes to the language, the particular language, visual but, language of the show. But when you're doing a wonder, you're on the you're on the edge, you're on the tightrope, because it's not just the actor's performance; it's the lighting, oh, it's the camera, it's, it's the focus puller. Oh, it's, and the heartbreak, heartbreak <laughs> is when you get all those things right, but the performances weren't great. Because or, or if someone drops. You don't have that; you're dead. Yeah. Or someone drops, or the or the or the cameraman bumps into a table, and and damn it, back to one, everybody. Oh no, it's but when it goes, it's 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 when you do wonders, it is truly an exciting. There's a a level of being on a tightrope, you know. As a, it's not safe. It's yeah. really on the edge. So, uh, but when you pull it off, it's it's pretty yeah. it's pretty remarkable. Now, I want to ask you a couple questions. Um, I ask all my guests. Uh, for you specifically, I'm going to change my question. You normally ask what your favorite films of all time are, but what are three shows that anybody who's interested in directing television should watch? Oh, that they're playing now? Uh, any, in, throughout the history of television, oh, sir. Uh, wow. If you want to do it throughout the history of your career, I'd that's fine too. i to talk to you about movies too, but, uh, uh, but shows, you know, it's like there are so many, there have been so many great ones. Mm -hmm. Uh that I'm, you know, and I, and I, I'm embarrassed to say I, I'm not necessarily the best authority on it. I've watched a lot, but there are people. Just, just your opinion, yeah. Just watched for Farmer, you know, the ones that, you know, the Sopranos and the Liar to me are about, you know, I don't know how you do any better than that. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the earlier, I mean, again, going back to that era, I also loved the show Six Feet Under. I think. Oh, it, that's just, what what a when my yeah. wife and I binged that a couple years ago, and we were just in yeah. awe of it. It's like yeah. the tone, what they were doing, how they were the, doing it, and how morbid it was. The wonderful. Oh, the characters! Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was. It was such a wonderfully done show. I mean, I always, I always throw out Breaking Bad because it's just Breaking Bad, fantastic. I mean, you know, it's one of those. Like, there's things, so, yeah. ma it's so just many. It's just a. It's just a uh, such well, a wealth of wonderful. Shows well, then now. let's talk about movies. Three of your favorite films of all time. Well, you know, when I was uh, when I was younger. When I was getting into it, one of my very favorite films was 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 early. It was a film by Francois Truffaut called The Four Hundred Blows. Sure, it was his first film. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And it was an autobiographical film of of Truffaut himself, how he grew up in a Parisian suburb and. And it was, uh, he, he was such a imaginative and yet misunderstood and unseen young child uh, who battled something. He was enacted by an actor called Jean-Pierre Léo. And it was just the most personal and uh, self-revealing and deep exploration of a life that was a very unhappy, a kid who had this incredible joyful connection to life, but was unmet by everything and was mischaracterized as a delinquent and a, you know, ne'er-do-well. And uh, he winds up being put in a reform school on the French coast. And the last image is the one that just uh, blows me away. He, he, he talked about never having seen the ocean. He, he runs away. He's been abandoned by everybody, his parents, his school, everything. And, and you understand him because the film does a brilliant job of getting inside his experience. He's a lyrical, you know, poetic soul and, and, and joyful and exuberant, but he's just kind of told he's nothing. 
and he he runs away from this uh, uh, reform school, and he's just and you know he's going to get in trouble for that and be punished more. But he's just running and running and running. He runs through the town and he gets to the beach and there's, you know, hundreds of yards of sand. He's running in one long tracking shot. And you see all of his energy. And it, it, it's, it's all, where's it going? He's, he's running towards the ocean. He, what's he going to do? It's, there's nowhere to go. And he gets to the shore and he, he steps into the lapping waves and he just turns around and he looks right at the camera and there's a freeze frame mm-hmm. of this young face mm-hmm. against the ocean. And it's such a beautiful image of of uh, desire and sadness and despair. And, they, and the, the only thing that you know that redeems the whole thing is, you know, he's going to grow up to be Francois Truffaut and make beautiful movies. So I, that was a movie that continues to just move me so much. Uh, and at the time, it was very groundbreaking visually because it, it used yeah, the camera the very, very energetically. Sure. Yeah, so I love that film. The other films that, you know, I, you know, I love all the you know, the whole canon, the Godfather movies, all that are fantastic. But, you know, the other kind of movies I find myself really drawn to, it's interesting, they seem to dramatize a particular conflict. And I would cite The Verdict by Sidney Lumet. Mm-hmm. Great Scent of a Woman. Um, Martin Brest. Yeah. Martin Brest. And another Lumet film a long time ago. It's funny what comes to me as I ask the question, but The Pawnbroker. And, and all three of those mm, yeah. equ- scenes, the movies, I realize this is a this is a subject that really speaks to me. You have the central conflict being a character or characters who have been wounded by life and who have cut off, who have shut down their emotional life, and the story is they're fighting through their own despair, facing their own wounds, facing the depth of their disillusionment and hurt, in order to reemerge, recover. And I find that just such a beautiful uh, that film can do in so many ways that can uh, can reach right into our souls and give us that experience because mm-hmm. we're all challenged that way. You know, we all grow up and we, you know our dreams don't get realized and we don't get seen or met or we get hurt and we we cut down and close off. And, and in yes, each so. of these films, you see you see the beauty of how it can awaken through relationship. I love that. It's like in, like in the verdict or that or scent of a woman. You got Pacino who's kind of embittered and this young Chris O'Donnell and it's like the innocent one who is who sees the value and sees the beauty in the older one who's already given up on himself and it's that but who needs the older one to reconnect in order for him the younger one to get what the help he needs and it's and it sounded a little bit of a brilliant script I think because after he saves Pacino from killing himself Pacino then comes back to his school and saves the young man mm-hmm. from being drummed out of school and gives him a future. And it's just... Hoo-ha! Hoo-ha! Hey, like it is. Sometimes you're saying people's dreams don't always come true. Sometimes you just want to make cake, but you made the best cookie. <laughs> so it is... Uh, it is. Uh, that's what I think television and, and storytelling and general films do so well. It, it, it mirrors our struggle as humans on this yeah. planet. And, and we empathize and, and it's... It is a great service that we do. I mean, we're not curing cancer, but man, are we hopefully moving the whole species forward a little bit yeah. when it's at its best, when it's That's at right. its best. Uh, That's right. And, and I'll say too, I'll add one other thing is my journey and what I so appreciate is it's been a journey of self-discovery. It's like mm-hmm. telling stories and serving story. What I've 
been asked, forced, forced, my, forced into doing, and I love doing, is having to confront things within myself, learning about who I am by what I'm drawn to in stories, and learning to explore things that I have, in my life, personally, have been unable or unwilling to explore. In the make-believe of a story, I've been able to go to depths that I've been then later able to apply to myself. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's, been, it's been a wonderful opportunity. And where can people pick up your new book, Directing Great Television, Inside yeah. TV's New Golden Age? May I be so bold as to show a copy of it? Obviously, obviously you should. Directing Great Television, Inside TV's New Golden Age. It's available on Amazon, and uh, I hope people will read it. I think it will appeal not just to aspiring directors, but I think it will appeal to them for sure. I think it will also appeal to just fans of television because I really just relate a lot of uh, – I illustrate any point I'm trying to make by telling a story of my own experience. And I really try to put the reader in, in the director's chair. So this is what I faced. This is what the challenges were. This is how I approach it. This is what didn't work. And this is what did. So I hope people will like it. Dan, I appreciate you being on the show, my friend. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show and writing the book. And I hope it does help a lot of people out there. So I appreciate your time, my friend. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate you. Thanks very much. I want to thank Dan so much for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs on the tribe. Thank you again so much, Dan. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get his new book, Directing Great Television, Inside TV's New Golden Age, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 515. And if you haven't already, please head over to filmmakingpodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show wherever you are listening. It really helps the show out a lot. Thanks again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. 